Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. It is 11.23, Friday, December, this uh, February 25th. Just saying that because I wanted to make sure that this is remembered for posterity when an alien finds this podcast buried deep under the Earth's crust. I thought you were riffing on the topic of today's podcast. I'm, I'm, I'm going to get there eventually. I'm, okay, okay. It's a circuitous, circuitous get there road. already. Okay, okay, I'll, I'll get there. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Clinton Crew. And I'm Devika Girish. We're the editors of Film Comment. Jonas Mikas has been on our minds a lot of late, with a recent retrospective at Film at Lincoln Center and an ongoing exhibit at the Jewish Museum. So for today's podcast, we wanted to discuss a form that Mikas was a true master of, the diary film. We welcomed archivist John Claxman and critic Gina Tellaroli for a conversation about films that document their makers' intimate lives. We discussed Mikas' kaleidoscopic, As I Was Moving Ahead Occasionally, I Saw Brief Glimpses of Beauty, Ed Pincus' influential diaries, films by Anne Charlotte Robertson, as well as the work of a more contemporary diarist, John Wilson, he of the critically acclaimed HBO show. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Today, we have some very special guests to talk about diary films. Gina, do you want to introduce yourself? I'm Gina Tellaroli. I'm a filmmaker and I write sometimes and I have been an archivist. I do a lot with film restoration. I'm the, one of the program advisors for the repertory part of the New York Film Festival with you guys. <laughs> um, and I'm now doing some consulting with the Film Foundation. Thank you. I know you're very busy. Sounds like it. <laughs> I'm glad you could find the time to join us. And regarding asking you to introduce yourselves, we really believe in the first person in this podcast. You know, we're all about that first person telling. So anyway, John, you want to contribute your your introduction? Sure, yeah. I'm John Claxman. I'm the archivist at Anthology Film Archives. I restore films there. And since we are in film podcast land, I guess it's a good moment to plug the new Screen Slate podcast, which I'm a contributor to as well. So check that out at ScreenSlate.com. Yes. Clinton, I just listened to the episode you were on this week featuring, among other things, Berlinale discussions. So definitely check out our podcast friends. One of the reasons we wanted to talk about diary films is because there was just this Jonas Mikas retrospective at Film at Lincoln Center, and the name that immediately comes to mind when you talk about diary films is Jonas Mikas. I think it would be great to start there, especially because we have two guests here who work at Anthology, and John is very much a Mikas expert. But also, like I think we'll get to how the diary form has maybe evolved, you know, since uh, Mikas kind of. In some ways, I wouldn't say he pioneered it, but uh, definitely many of the conventions uh, of the diary form that are popular today are associated with him. Uh, and John, maybe you could start us off um, talking, is there anything you saw from this recent retrospective, any film that immediately came to your mind when we proposed this topic to you? I didn't actually get to go to the Lincoln Center screenings, but I've seen Jonas's work many times over the years and have preserved a few of his films. The one that really stands out to me is sort of his last major 16 millimeter film diary work. As I was moving ahead, occasionally I saw brief glimpses of beauty. It's a work of his that I actually didn't know until after he died. It's 
It's from 2000. It's almost five hours long. It's 12, 16 millimeter reels, 12 chapters. I never saw it until after he died. And an anthology immediately um, in 2019 did a retro where we showed all of his films. And it took a long time to get through that. I think it was actually still in progress when the pandemic started. But the first part of that retro, we focused on the diary films. And the one that kind of came last was As I Was Moving Ahead. And that one covers uh, 1970 to 1999. So it's a big chunk of time, actually. And to me, it was just such a revelation and really sort of moving and meaningful to watch it right after he died, because it's by far, I would say, his most personal diary film. It's really about his family and his, his ex-wife and his friends and his home life in a way that um, I realized like a lot of his other work doesn't really touch upon in, in this same deeply personal way. And when we showed it, his wife and his two children were there in the audience and it was just kind of an amazing experience. And I, I really walked out of the film thinking this is really Jonas's masterwork. It's his masterpiece. It's his epic home movie, his epic diary. And it's kind of banal in many ways, you know, to steal um, a term that he used for a series he programmed at Anthology. Jonas had a series called Boring Masterpieces. It's kind of that, you know, it's, it's not to say it's not compelling. It's very compelling, but it, it's really capturing just sort of the most regular parts of his life going yeah. to Central Park, going on vacation, lazy Sunday afternoons, like the rain outside his window, like hanging out with friends. His children's births are both in it, which is not a banal thing. That's a pretty extraordinary event. But um, it's, it's just so deeply personal in a way that I think stands outside of his other work. His wedding is in it, I think, like the whole and the, all the stuff around it. Um, but there's also this voiceover, too, that he provides. And that's a big part of it. It's like Jonas reflecting on his life. He's, he, I think he was 78 when he made it. And it, so it, it does have a certain melancholy to it as like a sort of older man reflecting on his life and providing that narration as he's reviewing uh, the footage he's collected and shot from, you know, decades. And it's presented in a very non-chronological way. It's almost like a chance operation as far as how it's edited, which I think gives it, you know, a certain kind of meaning as well, where you're sort of really engrossed in his life. And it's it's very similar to how we sort of recall memories, right? Where there isn't necessarily an obvious order or structure to it. The film starts out with him saying, like, I tried to order this and I couldn't. So this is just going to be random basically and i think there's something sort of um important about that i think that's sort of a major contribution of the work within the genre um presenting this sort of epic home movie in sort of uh with no really obvious structure to it there's all these overlaps there'll be a reel where it's just focused on one of his children from being like a newborn baby to maybe one or two years old. So you see this growth. And then the next section, the child will reappear at a different age, maybe. And you go back in time again, you jump forward in time. There's all these layers of memory and image that do kind of evoke remembering. 
I have a question that I want to lay out for us, and it's maybe a basic question, but one that feels necessary as we talk about diary films. What makes a diary film interesting to watch? In some ways, it is this genre of banality. A lot of the best diary films are about the most ordinary experiences of a person's life. They don't necessarily have, you know, traditional narratives. And I was thinking about this when I was watching Reminiscences from a Journey to Lithuania. And I was absolutely riveted and moved, but I couldn't quite place my finger on what precisely it was that worked. There were elements that I related to very much on a personal level, especially when he's talking about the moment when New York felt like home, uh, when he's like walking through the woods and this real reflection on home and friendship. It just made me wonder, you know, what, what distinguishes a really watchable and engrossing diary film from an unwatchable and boring in a bad way diary film? I think with Jonas's films, there's a lot, um, a lot of his films are about community. So if you're interested in the experimental film community, it, he really touches upon that a lot. And, and then that sort of spills into sometimes a little bit famous people. <laughs> you know, he really captured in certain eras, you know, John Lennon and Yoko Ono or Andy Warhol or um, the Kennedy family. So, so there's a certain fascination with those figures that I think makes the work sort of engaging. Um, but that's, that's what I think sets uh, as I was moving ahead apart because um, it doesn't, some of those people may appear, but it, it doesn't really it's not focused on that in the same way. It's sort of, he turns inwards in a way that I think really differentiates that work within his filmography. And yet it still is pretty compelling. And I think it'd be interesting to sort of watch that work if you didn't even know who Jonas was. Like, I don't think you would need to know who Jonas was to find as I was moving ahead interesting. And I don't know what about it is interesting exactly. I think it's sort of the presentation of, an ordinary life on such a grand and epic scale is what makes that work interesting. Whereas maybe some of Jonas's other work is interesting because it captures John Lennon and you like John Lennon. I mean, I have to imagine on some level it's personal as well. You know, like what is your interest as a viewer? Is there a connective tissue that you can kind of dive into with the film? Because I'm sure there are diary films out there that we might not find interesting I mean even just like things on TikTok today which could be considered diaries of some kind that are constructed and made for other people to view so I think part of it's probably that I think probably at a base level though John when you're talking about Jonas and what makes it extraordinary and even when I'm thinking about some of the other diary films that we might discuss later on there has to be something honest and genuine in it you know what I mean if you I think if there's a person in there making something and somehow they're able to really capture through the editing of this footage, something real, whatever that real is, whether it's humor, whether it's pathos, whether it's experience. Like, I think if there's something genuine and real, there's probably someone that can connect to that. And also maybe on some level, some kind of intuitive ability to edit or create um, a piece of art through that. And that's, that's a harder thing to pinpoint or to talk about. I think it's something that maybe, and this is maybe the beautiful thing is there's no way to really nail down what it is, but it works when you see it. And maybe that's kind of what is kind of special and magical about these films in particular, because there, you know, there's not like a three act structure that we can examine, or there's no like structuralist 
you know, hardcore conceptual thing that we're talking about. Jodas had a, I was reading a bunch of interviews with him and he had a, I don't know if he was quoted or if it was an interview exactly, but he said that he's not a filmmaker, he's a filmer. And he talked about how filmmakers have a preconceived notion of what they're doing, where he just films and then later takes whatever he's filmed and turns it into something. That seems like slightly disingenuous though. Cause I mean, it could be, I don't know, but it's an interesting perspective to enter thinking about what a diary film is, I think. I actually saw him say a similar thing, which maybe in this context, he said it even better. It was this really strange event at the New York Public Library. It was probably in 2018, so it was maybe like a year before he died. And he was presenting work by other experimental filmmakers, not his work at all. It was actually really interesting because I never really saw Jonas speak publicly about like Kenneth Anger's films or Bruce Bailey or Maya Darren or someone. But I don't know how familiar the audience was with Jonas necessarily. Um, and there was a Q&A and someone raised their hand at the Q&A and they asked him, have you ever directed films? And I'm like laughing, just sitting there like, you know, this guy made so many films. And he answered the question by saying like, I only directed one film. All the other times I was just filming. And what he was like referring to is his first film, Guns of the Trees, which is a film with actors and it's an experimental narrative that he shot on 35. And so the way he is sort of situated was like, I was a director on that film in, in the traditional studio sense. I really like that description of himself as a filmer and not a filmmaker, because when I think about what makes his films and really good diary films watchable is that there seems to be a longing associated with the act of filmmaking, you know, something that is beyond the kind of more creative vision of filmmaking or the desire to create a product. There's some kind of more primal need. Primal is maybe overstating it, but, you know, this kind of real pressing need to film. And I know that for Mikas, the desire to make films really came from his experience of displacement and just loss, you know, so much loss at such an early age of everything, family, memory, home. And uh, I know that I was just reading an interview where he said that he developed an obsession with filming everything around him because it was this obsession for preservation, you know, almost as a response to all those years of loss. And I think that really is what I often latch on to uh, in these films that you see that need to not just save things, but like kind of root himself in places and times through cinema that that really comes through. And I was thinking when I was watching Reminiscences that there are reflections and I find them really beautiful, the way he reflects on the footage, right? The voiceover is is often really beautiful and it makes these connections but at the same time, it's very simple and direct. And this kind of balance between like wanting to make sense of what he's filming and how he's editing, but at the same time, letting it be guided by this kind of subconscious longing and desire and sort of like letting it be very surface level too. And that makes that like the emotional undercurrent feel very naked. I don't know. I, I thought that that was quite powerful. It's interesting. I only got to see two films in, your, in the retrospective, but I kind of unintentionally, just by the luck of timing, did a displacement double bill of sorts because I did Lost, Lost, Lost and A Letter from Greenpoint, which was kind of an insane way to kind of bookend things because Lost, 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 like John was saying, it starts when he gets to America and it is this obsession with kind of figuring out where he is and who he is and processing the loss of his 
country and the loss of his people. The first two reels, I almost feel like are a ghost story of some kind because he films all these people and he's like, never again will I see them. And then, you know, he gets to Manhattan and the movie was completed, I think in 1975, right, John? Right around there? Sounds right, yeah. And a letter from Greenpoint documents his move from his home of 30 years where he moved in 1974. So you have him moving into this Soho space in 1974, um, finishing Lost, Lost, Lost. And then you jump to a letter from Greenpoint and he's like leaving that home and like moving to Greenpoint. And it's, it was just like a very kind of stark displacement double bill that I really enjoyed, but it is, I think even in a letter from Greenpoint even more because it's really stripped down and he's his first major video work. It, that to me really is just an obsession with filming and it's filming himself. You know, it's the most mundane filming of himself drinking, filming of himself singing. So that to me, in a weird way, captures that without, you know, I would say the poetic nature of voiceover or the the film stock even, because it's much more him talking to the camera in the present moment. I mean, the term home movie itself is like so loaded, right? In, in, in the context of his films, especially. When we say home movie, we're thinking of homemade, but it also presupposes a kind of space. And I think what I love about the films you mentioned, uh, Gina, is that they're kind of it, like while they're searching for a form for the home movie, it's like that that search for a form is like kind of overlaid with a search for a space that is home. I mean, I think one thing is like he's an expert at what he's doing in the same way that like an improvising musician is an expert at their instrument. And so I think he's a very intuitive filmmaker who might just consider himself to be filming, but he's actually storytelling. And I think especially in the editing room and especially with as I was moving forward, I think what makes that movie compelling is that it seems like a disorganized series of reels of home movies or whatever, but it's actually very much a compelling story and a very personal story. And I think that diary films are diaries, like, but different from reading somebody's day-to-day boring diary where they're like, I hate my boyfriend or, you know, whatever. <laughs> like, no matter what, these are films too. So they're, they're edited and they leave things out. They focus on certain storylines and narratives are teased out of these otherwise disorganized realities that are being captured on film or video. Well, I think part of it is also what you're what we're seeing here is sort of the difference between video and film, because there's a lot of in-camera editing in his work, but, and also a very intuitive editor as far as like cement splicing and editing his footage. Um, but that style, you know, I think when he starts working in video, the form is related, but slightly different, maybe. And I think maybe that speaks to the media that he's using. How would you say it's different, John? Like, what what would you kind of track as the difference? I, I just feel like the video work is a lot more um, what we would almost even say like selfies. Like he's like pointing the camera at himself and talking. That doesn't really occur that much in his work, uh, his film work. And that's probably just because he was using a Bolex and that doesn't have sound and the shot length can only be 30 seconds. So I think the form really, the media sort of dictates the form in some ways. And he's so much more interested in like the tactility of the media in the analog films, I think. Catch the video works are very much long takes, which obviously the video format would allow him to do in a way that a 16 millimeter Bolex wouldn't. So do you think that what makes those compelling is his personality? He's a pretty larger than life character. Yeah, for sure. Jonas is 
personality as this old man, like a man in his 80s, who's, you know, this kooky 80 year old who's avant garde filmmaker who knows all these interesting people. Yeah, for sure. And is effortlessly eloquent. With diary filmmakers, I think it's just like luck of the draw. <laughs> if you can talk, you know, interestingly on the spot, then you've got something going. There's also just something I think super fascinating. And I had this experience in a totally different way recently when I did a marathon of the four jackass films where you have this young man, right? You know, filming his life on film, which just instantly makes anyone look beautiful, I think, to some extent. Um, and then you have him ending his career like old under the harshness of like a video lens. When I saw the Jackass Marathon recently, the first two films were shown on film. And obviously the last one is just shown, you know, it's like a DCP. You have these young men like damaging themselves. It's film. It looks all beautiful and great. The absurdity of youth. And then you have like them when their bodies are kind of giving out and it's like this kind of high definition video. And it was like, a fascinating way to watch a progression of age. And I think Jonas's work has kind of a similar quality to it, especially because like we were saying, you know, often I think when he appears in his films, it's because someone else has the camera. I know in Lost, 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 there's like all these examples where he's like, Ken Jacobs has the camera. And then you see him on the beach knowing that Ken is filming him or something. And then he is able to kind of turn that video camera on himself in this like last chapter of his life, which is fascinating. And that's, that's sort of the interesting thing about as I was moving ahead is that it seems like the last major 16 millimeter film work of his, it's the longest of all 16 millimeter films. And it's sort of a reflection of one's life from you know a man who's almost 80. And so it has this melancholy but the kind of irony of it all is that Jonas lived in there for 20 years. Um, so it feels like a man at the end of his life, but he lived in there 20 years and then, yeah, made all this video work. You know, there's a whole nother chapter, a whole nother uh, chapter in his filmography. Jonas Mikas and Jackass on the <laughs> Film Comment Podcast. You're listening to the Film Comment Podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. I kind of want to talk about some of the other diary filmmakers that, you know, we discussed uh, while we were prepping. And there was one named Gina that you were just like, we can't talk about diary films without this filmmaker. <laughs> and that's Anne Charlotte Robertson. Yeah. And I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about her and also get into later manifestations of the diary form and also the gendered aspects, because obviously that form became really important in like feminist filmmaking. And obviously her work is a great way to get into it. I was really lucky to see um, her films almost 10 years ago. It's funny. I will say as a side tangent, when if we're thinking about diaries and archiving, um, something that really frustrates me about all of our film institutions is that the websites are not an archive of screenings. And when they happen, I feel like film institutions update their websites and then we just lose information, which is to say I spent too much time this morning trying to figure out when and how I saw these films um, in Google. It, in Google, in Google searches that were not helpful. 
Um, but I did see these films um, almost 10 years ago, thanks to Nellie Killian and her Migrating Forms Festival. They're completely incredible. Her like magnum opus is called Five Year Diary. It's 36 hours long and it began in 1981. And she completed it about 16 years later. And they're just this incredible first person chronicle um, of her life. And they, it, they, it doesn't hold back. It's so um, constructed, but so raw at the same time. You know, she's dealing with like nervous breakdowns, weight loss, weight gain, these deeply personal things that really relate to her body and her life and her mental health, sometimes mundane. And I just find them to be incredible in their honesty and also in their construction, like so moving. I just think she's an incredible filmmaker and I wish her films could screen more often. Yeah, I, I agree completely. I was trying to remember when I saw them as well. And I saw them at the New York Film Festival at uh, Views from the Avant-Garde. And um, Harvard Film Archive had just digitized a, a big portion of the Super 8 works and they showed them. And um, it's the only time I've ever cried at the New York Film Festival <laughs> watching the films. Um, wow. <laughs> I feel like that's a big commendation. Yeah. And it's yeah. this work. It was this one. It, it's really amazing because the, the, the films are so raw. And it's uh, this sort of piece she made about her cat who died, her close friend. And I think it's like even on like 9-11 or the day after 9-11, the diary film sort of takes place. And it's just, you know, deeply moving and tragic and uh, emotional. And it really, yeah, it really got to me. No, I was just going to say it's it's interesting because it's like, Jonas's films feel like they have this massive scope. And I think her films, they're much more, like there's just something much more introspective and individual and personal to some extent, maybe if we were to compare the two, because they have a lot of formally similar qualities. Um, Five-year diaries separated into reels. I wish we could see them, screen them. Actually, I should mention the Harvard Film Archive has a bunch of her work on their Vimeo. So you can go watch it immediately. And I guess it's also coming in the 70s at a time where discourses around feminism, the self and what counts as personal and what counts as political, all these things are kind of changing because, I mean, Ed Pincus was sort of a contemporary of hers, right? I mean, Ed Pincus Diaries is also 70s, so it's around the same time. And I was reading a little bit about that earlier today and thinking about how that really captures like attitudes around gender and sexuality and home life. But, you know, it's like seeming to come from that 70s moment where like all of these things are suddenly feel like very political. So it's like this obsession or compulsion to analyze home life, analyze marital life, analyze like desire. And so just thinking about like maybe that as a different so, you know, a different or new idiom in, in those films from the 70s. It's fun. I mean, I guess this is maybe way off track, so maybe I shouldn't say this. <laughs> Anthology just did a Jim McBride series, and he kind of has the, the biggest fake-out diary film. <laughs> After one of the screenings of David Holzman's diary, there were these two, like, I don't know, 60-year-old dudes who were there after the screening, and it was, like, me, Jeannie Leota had watched it, and then these two dudes. And they were just, like, kind of like why is that interesting like who is this guy and like he's such a narcissist and he was just like I, I do think that film actually gets at a critique of everything you just said Erica, like in 1967 <laughs> before like the 70s even became a thing and it's not even real 
David Holtzman kind of looks like Ed Pincus too. They understand that it was fake or no? No, they did not understand that it was fake. And it was funny. Jeannie and I just kind of let them go off with their idea. (laughs) Yeah. I'm curious, like uh, with these domestic uh, diary films, like Jim McBride and the other ones that we were just talking about, kind of to bring back Clint's question, what, what makes them so engrossing? I mean, there's to some extent they resemble melodramas, right? I mean, they have that structure and the texture and the drama. Yeah, I think there's um, an air of voyeurism, you know, there's some pleasure in that. And, you know, obviously there's other diary filmmakers who have um, hit upon that, you know, I think mainly like Joe Gibbons, like spy. I was going to bring up Joe Gibbons. As being like <laughs> Joe Gibbons spying is one of the greatest diary films. And it's very much him sort of documenting his neighbors, like from his blinds and stuff. And so he's really sort of picking up on the sort of voyeur, the pleasure of voyeurism, you know, which I think that's part of it too. Like, like hearing Jim Ride's um, partner talk about getting an abortion or, um, you know, her dad uh, and her, her, her kids or um, her romantic life, you know, it's sort of just an insight, a very personal insight to someone else's life. The question of warism uh, kind of brings me to a film that I wanted to talk about, Kelly Loves Tony by Spencer Nakasako. Warism and who is filming and talking and who is being filmed uh, is kind of interesting, especially in these domestic films. And there's this article about Ed Pincus's diaries in Film Comment that I said <laughs> I was going to quote. And I just this sentence stood out to me where the writer Stephen Schiff says, typically Jane, Ed Pincus's wife, analyzes everything, her body, her reactions, Ed's sexuality, even the reasons she sneezes. And typically Ed tries to hide behind his camera behind manly ratiocination and manly shrugs. And it's just something that maybe I hadn't quite necessarily registered strongly while watching the film, but there is this kind of division of labor in filming and being filmed. And Kelly Loves Tony, which is a film by Spencer Nakasako, who at that time was working in the Bay Area as a teacher in after-school video and filmmaking programs uh, with a lot of Asian children of refugees who had come here, Laotian refugees and Vietnamese and, and, you know, East Asian refugee kids. And he made a series of films where he gave these kids cameras and basically had them film their lives, you know, like a diary filmmaker, and then worked with them to edit and turn them into films. And Kelly Loves Tony is a film I really love a lot. It follows these two kids. They are the children of Laotian refugees. Kelly, who has just graduated high school, and her boyfriend, Tony, who risks being deported because he was like part of a gang or something and and has some... Uh, small charges against him and he's close to meeting the three strikes rule to be kicked out of the country and Kelly graduates she has all these dreams of going to college and you know earning money and achieving the American dream which is a term she uses in the film Uh, but then she becomes pregnant and moves in with Tony's family and has her kid but she still tries to go to college while Tony's trying to like figure out his life and his like legal case And the film is kind of observational snippets from their lives with the two of them mostly wielding the camera. And then really diaristic sections where Kelly sits alone in her bedroom and just talks into the camera and reflects on her life. I think it's quite remarkable because they're true amateurs and the it's like some they don't really know what to make of the camera. So you see them try to figure out like what the camera allows and the camera really has 
a tangible impact on how Kelly starts to see herself and how she starts to make space for herself in her partner's family's home where she has no space. And like she uses these video diary recording sessions as a way to make that space. But what strikes me about the film is usually, even though this film is called Kelly Loves Tony and she is the more active part of this equation in terms of the filmmaking, other than these video diary sequences, she's rarely wielding the camera. She's always in front of the camera. And Tony is doing most of the wielding. And this is partly because she's always caught up in domestic chores when she's at home. She's always cooking, cleaning, or taking care of the kid. And Tony just has a lot more room to be just like hanging around and walking around and operating the camera. And it made me think a lot about just the act of holding the camera and having your hands free to be able to do that and to film your life is a reflection of some kind of division of labor too. I do think a lot of like what we think of as the major avant-garde is like men with cameras and they often film their partners. And ask them to talk about extremely personal things. So the men on this podcast, y'all got anything to say about that? <laughs> I, I think that's a very valid point to make, uh, insight. <laughs> Um, I think there, I think there's a lot to be said about who's behind the camera and who's being filmed. That being said, when it comes to avant-garde cinema, I think of um, Marie Menken as kind of being the sort of pioneer of the diary film and the one who really you know influenced so many people. I was just thinking about my conflicting emotions of joy and terror I sometimes get watching Stan Brakhage movies. <laughs> well, and that, and, that, and that, I think with Brakhage, like. Jane Brackage is such a huge part of the work as a contributor, as object, um, as a filmer. In some cases, she's often not acknowledged and not credited, but is, you know, crucial to those works from that era, at least when they were together. Which is, uh, you know, just to like free associate, one of the things that kind of makes, as I was moving forward, so beautiful is that it does somehow points the camera at Hollis, Jonas's wife, and the children, but Jonas himself appears frequently. I think Hollis herself probably operates the other people around them. It's just sort of kaleidoscopic in that way, and never less than loving to the subjects. Let's move out of our uh, narcissistic fascination with our parents' generation and uh, talk about our own generation. You guys were talking about the great contemporary chronicler of day-to-day life in Ridgewood, John Wilson, and his television show. I have to say, I didn't, before you mentioned it, somehow I, I wasn't thinking of him at all as a diary filmmaker. And now I'm really interested to hear you guys talk about it because it makes sense, but it's like the work is so different, you know, from everything we've been talking about. He's in that lineage, I think. I mean, he's done something different with it. You know, he has a very unique spin, um, but, you know, he he's out in the streets just documenting Manhattan. Well, what maybe maybe makes it stand apart just in terms of form then is that it's not always him behind the camera. Um, he obviously, he's like driving a narrative um, with what he's filming of himself. He is the, the character, but he has a whole team of people who are on the streets of Manhattan. It's kind of amazing though. This last season is just as coherent. When we were talking about Jonas's idea of being a filmer versus having a concept going in. I know that the team of people, for example, that shoot for him, like had to go and try to get footage of people trying to split the check. At the same time, they're filming the crazy man with the mattress on his back or whatever is happening on the streets. They also have pretty clear goals going in of what to film in terms of creating 
a more specific narrative. So it is this really interesting combination of a concept that is being created using footage that is randomly caught and then like things that are genuinely have nothing to do with this concept that end up fitting in or that he ends up fitting in with his narration. It's almost reverse engineered Mikas. It, it, like he's it, it, starting it, with this idea that he or something he wants to talk about. It feels more like reportage to me than diary. For instance, if a journalist was like, I'm going to go on a trip to this place and then write about what I encounter there and what I see there. That's different from, I'm going to record the banal interactions of my daily life and then make a narrative about it. There's a sense of in the narratives of them being kind of unplanned or improvised, like the episode where he goes to the energy drink guy's house. Like, it seems like he's just like doing things and making decisions and bringing a camera with him. And then events unfold that lead to the next beat in the, in the story. I mean, obviously, he like crafts it into something that's pretty, pretty great. And I think that's sort of what's unique about it is sort of the editing. It's carefully formed. It's very tight. From talking to him, you know, I think he does fall somewhere in between like what Jones was saying as like a director and a filmer. He does like instruct his crew to go out and capture certain things. Like, I want you to go into the streets of New York City and capture, you know, whatever um, banks or something, you know. Um, Scaffolding. <laughs> scaffolding yeah right. scaffolding and then and then, it, then it's like formed into this thing and i think with the hbo series like having that budget has allowed him to do you know certain things that he couldn't do before but in the same way i really respect it because it still is so similar to the work he was doing before he had an hbo show like it's it's not so different it's just allowed him to expand a bit there's something about him having this identity as someone who films in this way, maybe they are almost the purest diary film because it feels like this is how he lives as a person. He makes a choice to look at something on Craigslist or to do this or to do that. And it leads him to the energy drink thing or that this he runs into someone. I don't know. I guess like it's hard to know how much of that is so pre-planned and how much of some things are because he is someone who's making this show. He ends up in like in this experience and in this way they're a diary film about a man making an HBO show. <laughs> I like that. Right? <laughs> it's like maybe there's almost something ultimate about it. But I also think, you know, going back to what we were talking about earlier, there also is a level of obsession, right? That I hears with a lot of diary filmmakers. And I think he even addresses it in the HBO show in certain points um, about like keeping logs of capturing. And I think that's, you know, common with, as we talked about before, with, Lots of diary filmmakers. I still love that idea that that is the most basic idea of what creates these films or what makes these films compelling is that the person behind them just has to film. I think what's interesting to me about his work is also that instead of investigating his own life, really he's looking at the world around him and a lot of the jokes, a lot of the stories, a lot of the things that reflect on his own life are shots of walls that look like faces and stuff, you know, piece of garbage in the in the gutter, just like looking at details as little things that he's looking at or, and compiling, you get more of a sense of a personality or a perspective on the world, rather than a description of a psyche. And I think that that's just a very different approach. It's like a portrait of how he sees the world. Like, I think that's what's compelling about it. It's like a portrait of how someone navigates the world and that someone happens to be really funny and observant. 
it's kind of amazing that his work, I mean, I, I have so much respect for it. I think it's great, but it's kind of amazing that it's become so mainstream. Like when I heard he was having a show on HBO, I was like, well, that's going to be great. You know, since I knew his other work, that's going to be great, but that probably won't get another season. <laughs> like this probably won't be super popular, but I was completely wrong. It's, it seems to be very, very popular. I think another thing is about it is it's really sweet and positive. I don't think he's going to do an episode about abortion, you know? Like, or, you know? I also find that the show is very melancholy and sad sometimes. There's that episode with the beach season one where they go with the guy hanging out. The at guy the, at the, the MTV spring break or whatever it is. And I've said it before, the his his battery episode from season two, I think it was the greatest film of uh, 2021. <laughs> and it's very melancholy. It's very moving and melancholy. I have to say, I admire the work a lot. I do struggle to watch it precisely because of that sense of melancholy. I find it kind of overwhelming the way he films the city. And I, I don't quite know how to articulate why, but there's a sense of loneliness that often comes through. Maybe it's the structure of this guy narrating, you know, these experiences of urban life and the fact that the voiceover is clearly imposed after. It's not like narrating in the moment. It's kind of narrativizing these scenes later. And there's something very interior and inward about you know, the way he's looking at the world and it just makes me, yeah, it just overwhelms me with a kind of loneliness and melancholy, even as I find it funny and, you know, very astute. I think also there's something about the time it's come out. It's really weird that this show has come out and it's a New York City show. I remember, I think that first season, like everyone that was talking about it, it was so moved just to see this pre-pandemic footage of New York City and just to be spending that time in New York City in a different way. I don't know. It's like such a personal show and it's such a New York City thing. And New York City's been through a lot in the past two years, which is the span of time this show has existed in. So that feels somewhat maybe connected to that feeling. And the first season, the last episode sort of concludes it's about New York City during COVID. And I think it was the first piece of art that I saw, at least, that really sort of um, dealt with COVID in a meaningful way. I remember it was, it was surprising. It was, I was kind of shocked when he, when he was like, and then we, the news started showing like we had to stay home. Yeah, I think that uh, the New York thing is also interesting because it shows a New York that you don't see in any other mainstream media, like the garbage in the streets. But also just like the weirdness of people existing in public. I mean, it's it's crazy. When I first moved to New York, I just remember my first week here, I saw a man moonwalk across an extremely busy intersection, you know. And you were like, I should do an HBO show where I compile footage like this. And then, <laughs> and then he stole your idea. I wish I thought that, then I would be rich now. But I just remember being so thrilled by that. And, you know, that's the sort of moments that the show captures, you know, all these sort of weirdos who also feel completely banal in their own ways. I mean, even if they're filming banal things, I don't think we'll ever be able to pull apart the show and find like an auteurist vision of the six videographers that work on the show. But you have a lot of different people, different heights, different, you know, backgrounds on the streets of New York City looking for these things. And I think that probably allows for so much more perspective than would even be possible if he was doing the show himself. Right. There's different eye lines. And, I mean, it makes yeah. a big difference if you have a short person, what they're noticing, and if you have a tall person and what they're noticing. <laughs> I mean, really, though. I think he described it as a scavenger hunt. 
like he he gives the people who are shooting like a like a list it's like a scavenger hunt like go find this interpretations of what that even is too you know so that that makes i think it really beautiful and connective and collaborative um and we haven't talked about diary films as a collaborative thing we've talked about kind of the reverse of that like the negative aspect of like what these women in front of the camera are doing um but it really feels like there's something collaborative and beautiful about that. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think also a diary is made up of things that are not made by you, images that you did not make, but that images that you are taking in. Scrapbooking is kind of part of the activity of journaling or, or diary making. And that's like a, a part of many such films as well. Should we tease Gina's piece? Gina is writing something about... Lost, 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 and oh, don't reveal the other title. Sure. I think um, it's a good surprise. Yes. Okay, but you, do you want to explain what the feature is that you guys sure, do? Yeah. The thing that you guys so do we have sometimes? kind of this irregular column called Seeing Double, where we invite writers we like, like Gina, to come up with an unlikely double feature, basically, or an unlikely pair of movies and write about the ways in which they're connected. So one of Gina's movies is Jonas Mikus's Lost, Lost, Lost. The other I will not reveal. <laughs> Suffice it to say, it is surprising, and I am very excited about Gina's essay. <laughs> but I will say it's from 2003. It's not a diary film, but I will say that it screened on the same day as Lost, Lost, Lost at Anthology Film Archives. So I was upstairs watching the unnamed film, and then I ran downstairs to catch Lost, 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 and it changed my life and you can read all about it in the film comment letter. Yes. Yes. Very excited. Uh, I feel like you've, you've given a lot of clues. So it'll be funny <laughs> if someone just like guesses it. If they were able to go back to the website. I know that really good. Actually really the point I made earlier, you, it's not easy. It's not going to be listed clearly. <laughs> Only expert Googlers will be able to get to the bottom of this mystery. <laughs> Okay, well, thank you guys both, and hope to have you on again soon. The Film Comment Podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.